days to see your glory, the light in the sky, but more importantly, to know you in our hearts as the light of our lives. The truth, the beauty, the wonder, sovereign over all. And as we come today to learn more about you, help us to know that it's not just what we know in our minds, but what we have in our hearts and what we feel in our relationship with you. Bless our teachers as they bring understanding to us so that our hearts might be warmed by you. And through both we come to know and love and serve and be obedient to you. And we ask these things in the knowledge and the hope and the understanding that the Holy Spirit is both with us and on us and through us. And through that, like this beautiful sun, you will show us your light and truth. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I felt very at home this morning seeing having coffee and donuts, which in the Episcopal Church we used to call the Eighth Sacrament. (laughs) I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to develop and present this material. I want to thank Dan for inviting me and uh, for actually coming up with the idea for this presentation because I can seldom remember frankly, when I have enjoyed putting together an educational unit as much as I have this one. Uh, Before we get into our material for this week, I wanted to make certain that we didn't have any loose ends from the last couple of weeks, any questions that you might have about the material we've covered so far. Don't all speak at once. Okay, so I'm going to assume that you all understood everything that we talked about. So what was last week's takeaway? What was Jesus' erusin? His death on the cross. What will be Jesus' nisuin? Excuse me? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Good. We have some people who really got that right. And what we are going to do this week is, in a sense, finishing up from last week, but working into that translation, uh, translation or transition from Nisuin to, uh, I mean, Erusin to Nisuin, And we're going to talk about three parables that Jesus used, which have usually been interpreted as referring in some way or another to that final marriage feast. The royal wedding feast in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. The wise and foolish virgins, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And places at the banquet from Luke and I got it correct this week. It's in your handout as Luke, not Juke. <laughs> so, at any rate, the royal wedding feast. Our text is Matthew 22, 4 through 14. Actually, 1 through 14. I'm sorry, that's a mistake. 
So I'm looking for a reader for Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Okay, and please wait for the microphone. Who's reading? Okay. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thank you. Okay. Comments, questions? Now there's a specific reason why I chose Matthew's version for this, which we'll get to in a moment. But I thought that the first thing we needed to get was sort of a who's who in this. Okay, so this is the easy part. Who's the king? The king is God. Yes, okay, because whenever you have a wedding imagery, who is the, uh, okay, it's, it's, it's the king is God the father. His son Okay, who's the bridegroom in the context of the Newer Testament? It's Jesus is the bridegroom. Okay. Who are the first invited guests? Israel, yes. In particular, if you look in the context of the passage, Jesus was telling this in the midst of his final week in, of his life in Jerusalem, and he was speaking to the Jewish leaders. The leaders, the priests and their cohorts, the scribes, the people who were 
the religious authorities of the day. The guests in the hall, where did they come from? No, where did they come from? How did he gather those guests? What did he tell his slaves to do? Go out and get as many as you can. Were they particularly choosy in who they brought in? No. In other words, what was the standard by which people were brought in? What was the standard? Uh, the, for these guests who were actually in the hall. They came. They, came. They, just, they were willing to come. Okay? They were willing to be gathered into the banquet hall. But now we come to one of the trickier parts of Matthew's version of this parable. And there's a, this is where we get into why I chose the Matthean version. Because Matthew adds something to Jesus' parable that you don't find in the parallels in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. What he adds is this whole thing of there's one wedding guest in there who is dressed inappropriately. Okay? He's not wearing a wedding garment or a wedding robe. Okay, so what's going on here? Most modern scholars would say that this is just a little separate parable that was added later to this parable of the great wedding banquet because they didn't want people to get too lax ethically. And here you have this whole situation where the guests were being invited in, they were being dragged in from the streets, and they were you know, both good and bad, and so there was a danger of what is called antinomianism, of basically thinking that if you believe in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do. Because after all, both the good and the bad were brought into the wedding feast. And they said, no, 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 no. We needed to have some kind of a break on this. And so scribes or someone else or Matthew himself threw in this as a separate parable as a kind of a warning. However, I remember back when I was first studying parables, one of the things that I learned that I think is very important is to respect the integrity of the text. To respect the integrity of the text. And so I think we need to see this not as an extra parable that was sort of thrown in as a counterpoise and an afterthought, but as part of Matthew's actual understanding and remembrance of Jesus' parable. So, the real question is not how did the man get in there without a wedding garment, but how did all the others get their wedding garments? What? How did, what? They were dragged in right off the street. Where did they, I mean, were they working, running around, working on, you know, in their wedding garments? just in case the king would bring them into the banquet? Okay, so how were they brought into the king's palace? Just as they were. But this is not a come-as-you-are affair. So where did they get their wedding garments? They pass, who, pass, who would pass them out? 
The king or his son, yes. Okay. Those wedding garments were not something that they brought with them. Okay. It was something that was the gift of the son to the guests. So what does that wedding garment represent? If it's an article of clothing that you need to be wearing to be a guest at the wedding banquet of the son, and you're given that wedding garment by the son, but uh, you have actually come just as you are, what garment is it that you have to put on in order to be a guest at the royal wedding? The, thank you, you got it. That's correct, that's absolutely correct. How do we get the righteousness of Christ? Kindly state your answer oh. again and then answer the second one. The wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ and I don't know the answer to the second one. How do we get it? <laughs> How do we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ, people? Through believing in Jesus, what does Paul call that? It's called justification. Okay, we are accounted as righteous before God because of our faith in Jesus Christ and therefore their acknowledgement of the Son is how they were given the righteousness of the Son as a wedding garment that made it appropriate for them to sit in the banquet. Yeah. Sorry. So my question is, is that really the way it was back then culturally? You're invited to a wedding and the family or the son or the groom the would give the you the... Groom? Did that really happen? If so it would was wealthy would those... enough, yes. Why? why? Why would you be given your wedding garment by the bridegroom assuming they had the means to do that? Nobody had their own? Nobody had their own, number one. So everybody was equal? Yes! Thank you, so everybody would be equal. You wouldn't have distinctions of rank. Your ability to sit as a wedding guest has nothing to do with your level of achievement. Because again, who was brought into the wedding hall? Both good and bad. All sorts and conditions, just as they were from the streets. And therefore, you want everybody to be an equal participant in the joy of the wedding feast so the bridegroom gives them a uniform to wear. Okay? So, what do you have to put on if you're going to be a guest at the marriage supper of the Lamb? What do you have to dress yourself in? The righteousness of Christ. How do you get that? It's through accepting Christ as your Savior so that when God looks at you, when the king looks at you, what does the king see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. Now let's look back at the man without the wedding garment. Why was he not wearing a wedding garment? 
He thought he was fine just as he was without accepting a wedding garment. So what was he trusting in? He was trusting in himself. He was trusting in his own righteousness. Okay? He thought, okay, they invited me just as I am. That must mean I'm okay. Just as I am. Okay? He forgot the without one plea. Okay, just as I am, I'm going to come in. My clothes are just fine. So naturally, when the king asked him, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Whoops. Maybe my own righteousness isn't good enough. This is critical. What we're saying here is the ones who are worthy of being guests at the wedding are precisely the ones who do not trust in their own religiosity and their own righteousness, but entirely depend on the gift of the bridegroom. Okay? Any questions, comments? Yeah, well, then that begs the question, how do you know when you get the gift? How do you know when you get the gift? Okay. Well, how do you get the gift? Well, that's the other question. <laughs> well, I mean, how, what did we say? How do you get the gift? Well, I, What does I, Paul tell you? I, I'm an accept, I believe. Okay. That he was, he died for my sins. Exactly. That's how you get it. So that's how you get the wedding garment. Okay, so that's enough. It is not, it's not like step two. Ah, we'll get to step two. Okay. Okay. But to be a qualified guest at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the main thing is to believe that Christ died for your sins and therefore you have no righteousness of your own whatsoever to rely on. You can only rely on the righteousness of Christ, which you receive in faith. Okay, this is the, you know, folks, this is a Presbyterian church. You do believe in justification by grace through faith, don't you? Yes? Calvin lives. That wasn't... Uh, clothed by the lamb and they threw he really destroyed him i mean threw him chopped him up and threw him to hell is what you what you said yes they threw him out into the outer darkness where there will be gnashing of teeth and beating of gums if you've already lost your own um there's only one in the parable but one's enough to make the point isn't it you don't need any more to make the point Yeah. Any questions? All right. This has always been a mystery to me. Now you've answered in just this one simple thing. Where did they get the wedding garments? Never thought of that. Yep. I mean, it's to me, the minute you say this entire thing is one parable and you respect its integrity as a single unified parable, all of a sudden, that really becomes the key question. Where did they get them? And there's only one viable answer. They had to get them from the bridegroom. And especially, in a, if you were wealthy enough back in those days, 
and you were celebrating your Nisuin, the second part of your marriage, the marriage feast, you didn't want people to be embarrassed by not having the right clothing to wear. Yeah. This is something fairly similar to bridal parties on the groom's side and the bride's side, all dressing up in a particular uniform. Uh Uh-huh. Right? And somebody has to pay for that. Usually it's, in our culture, who? Who fronts the bill for the uh, clothes and the daughter's side traditionally. So this is something of an analogy. We have that system that weddings cost money. So back then, yes, you could be provided with a, a beautiful gift of clothing that would represent you were at the king's wedding. One of the things that also show, throws a little light on this, there were two days out of the year in the Jewish calendar back in the time of Jesus when making matches was particularly appropriate. Um, and what they would do is that on these two days, um, the young eligible women would all don identical white robes so that no one could tell who was rich, who was poor, and they would all go down to the vineyards and dance. And so the idea was that young men who were looking for a bride would be able to see, uh, oh, I like that one, I'll pick that one. Uh, One was the 15th of the month of Av, which usually occurs in August. It's the same month, by the way, as the destruction of the temple on the 9th of Av, but this is 15th of Av, which is known in Jewish circles as Jewish Sadie Hawkins Day. (laughs) Okay, would you care to guess what the other day is and why, and this is one of the reasons why that day is considered particularly joyous and festive? It's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Believe it or not, in the time of the temple, it was one of the most joyous days of the year, in part because young eligible women would dress themselves in identical white robes, go down to the vineyards, and dance in the hopes of attracting a husband. Okay, but again, what's the point? You all have to look alike. You all have to look alike. Now. I have a question. Yeah. You have taught me something I've never thought about before as really the central message of this parable from Matthew. Mm -hmm. Now, when I know that this is the only add-on to the parable to the others, I don't understand why it was not included there. In our culture, it would be very much against parents picking uh, mates. But I have about four Indian doctor friends who had arranged marriages, and they worked out fantastic.
At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others came, said, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, today I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour.
works done in faith. Works. Works performed in faith. Yeah, I'm a little concerned, though, what, uh, when you said, what does this represent when the, when the um, virgins who had the oil and they asked, the virgins that didn't ask, said, uh, can, you, can we use some of your oil? And they said, no. It was almost like, do not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. No, you can't okay. do that. Can you get oil from me? Well, if you're sharing. How can I share my works with you? If that's what it represents, you probably can't. But it Exactly. Exactly. It's something that the wise cannot share with the foolish. Okay? I can share with you sense, I can share my faith with you by testifying to it. I can share my love with you, but I can't share my works. Okay, can you hear me now? Even though I'm not selling Verizon. Yes? What, what is the significance of 
Well, let me put it this way. When the bridegroom comes to celebrate the great wedding feast, can you still engage in good works? Or is it too late? You better do it now. You better do it now. The key point here is it can't be the same thing as the wedding garment. We've already covered that. It has to be something that you actually have to perform yourself, that you have to do, that you have to acquire, and that you can. Whether that can is because you are enabled by the electing grace of God, or whether that can is because God grants freedom of will to human beings, in other words, whether you're a Calvin or an Arminius, Arminian, you still gotta use it. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a marvelous passage of Paul's that would indicate that at that particular point, you're talking about rewards, okay? Rewards. And that we'll see perhaps in our next parable. If I can get this thing. Oh, never mind. Just stick it in your pocket. There we go. All right, we got one more parable to go. Places at the banquet. Now here we're going in Luke. The text is Luke 14, verse one, and then skip down to verses seven through 11. Who wants to read? Maybe I will. How how about that, let me read here. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. What kind of banquet was Jesus attending? Was this a wedding feast? It was just an ordinary dinner, okay? It was on the Shabbat, it was a Sabbath meal. He went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. He'd been invited. Now the thing we skipped over was the incident of the woman with the alabaster flask of ointment And they said, you know, if he knew who it was who was washing his feet, you know, he'd be very offended by this. But um, 
The key point here is why then, if it's not a wedding feast, why did he tell a parable about a wedding feast? What was he trying to do? What occasioned his parable? What was he responding to in telling this parable? What did he notice? They were watching him, but he was watching them. What did he notice? What? He was noticing where people were sitting. How did they, what, were, what was it in particular that they were doing in terms of choosing their seats? They were all jockeying for the highest place of honor. The closer you sat to the person who was holding the feast, the higher the honor. But they were basically trying to put themselves in places of honor. Now, what's the wedding a symbol of? No, but I mean, what celebration is the wedding a symbol of? The wedding banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you get to choose your own place at the banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Who determines the order of seating at a wedding? The bridal party, you know, the bride and groom. Okay? Yeah, the mother of the bride, yes. No, the mother of the bride is just there to participate in the martyrdom of the pastor who's solemnizing the relationship. (laughs) I know that. I used to be one, you know? Okay? But you don't determine it. So how do you get honored at the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb? What do you do if you want to be honored at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You take the lowest seat. You humble yourself. Now we get into why you need to bring the oil. Who gets exalted at the wedding's feast? The one who brought the most oil. Ah! This is where your works do. But you can't presume on it. You can't presume on it. Take the lowest seat at the table, and if the bridegroom says to you, no, you did so much more, you deserve to move up higher. And you'll be moved up higher, and you'll be honored in the presence of the other wedding guests. Okay, so when we talk about works... We're not talking about whether you get into the wedding or not. We talk about where the order of sitting takes place. Okay? Now, you have on your handout three blanks. There are three rules of etiquette. You know, I grew up, I, I married a spouse from the South. Now, of course, one of the things you got to realize, if you grew up in the South, there were two things that were absolutely crucial. One, you had to be saved, and two, you had to be raised right. Part of being raised right is the fact that at every coffee table in almost every Southern home, there were two volumes. One was the family Bible. The other one was Amy Vanderbilt's Complete Book of Etiquette. 
Okay, so this is your Amy Vanderbilt Book of Etiquette for the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. What do I wear? What am I supposed to wear at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb? The righteousness of Christ. That's my wedding garment. That's the dress code. What must I bring? Good works. That's my gift to the bridegroom. Where do I sit? In humility. Let the bridegroom exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. Do you see how all of this works into where these customs that were used at weddings are really and truly helping us to understand what Jesus was getting at in looking at the main event, the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. I do want to leave some time for questions. We're going to be a little flying on this. First of all, the invitation. Look in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. Okay. Now, let me tell you a little bit about how to read the book of Revelation. First of all, you don't read it. You listen to it. The book of Revelation specifically states that it was a blessing was pronounced on the one who reads the words of the Revelation aloud. The word that is used in the Greek is specifically for reading aloud. It is meant to be recited. In fact, it's probably meant to be sung. So my spouse is actually the one who really, this is, Revelation is her book. She studied that extensively in seminary. She loves it. She's taught courses in it. And she once recommended to me uh, to do something, to actually sit down, and if you have a tape or a CD or something of the Bible being read aloud, and probably the best is Alexander Scorby reading the King James Version, sit down and in one continuous sitting just listen to the entire book of Revelation. And I was coming back from a visit to her at seminary, and I happened to have my New Testament in, of the King James Version with Alexander Scorby reading, and I queued up the book of Revelation, and on my way back from Connecticut to West Virginia, I listened to the whole thing through. It'll change your whole way of looking at it. It'll change your whole way of looking at it, because the one thing that you come to realize is that the entire book of Revelation is a liturgy. It's a liturgy. It's a worship service, okay? So with that in mind, I want us to listen, I want you to listen to Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay. That is the invitation. All right. The marriage of the Lamb has come because what are you dealing with in terms of revelation? Uh, in Greek, the title is the apocalypsis, the apocalypse. Okay. An apocalypse, that's a Greek word that means unveiling. It means that John here has had the veil between the eternal world of the heavenly torn aside so that he could get a glimpse of what was yet to take place on earth but was an accomplished fact in heaven. And that's why he could see people crying out as a multitude, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. It's present. Okay. And we have a blessing pronounced on those who are invited. Now, for the moment, forget Psalm 45. The bride. Okay. The bride. Okay. First of all, look at Revelation 21, 1 through 4 and 9 through 16. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And literally that means the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, they will be his people. He will be their God. Anybody know what that language is? What is that formula? I will be, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's covenant language. We have the consummation of the new covenant in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Here comes the key thing. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I'm not gonna go into all the details. 
And the one who spoke, this is verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. So what was the shape of the city? A perfect cube. Isn't that an odd shape for a city to be in? So you kind of have to wonder, all right, what else was shaped like a cube? Look at 1 Kings 6, 19 through 20. All right. The inner sanctuary Solomon prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also lay, overlaid an altar of cedar. So what was the shape of the Holy of Holies in the temple? A perfect cube. So what does that tell you about the city of the New Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb? It is the heavenly holy of holies. Now you know why it says, I saw no temple in the city in the book of Revelation. It didn't need a temple because the entire city was the holy of holies. Now, the wedding guests. Here comes the fun part. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Anybody want to read? I'll read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Okay, his name will be on their foreheads. Remind you of anything? Probably not. What? No, only one Hebrew person had the name of God on his forehead. Look at Exodus 28, 36 through 38. This is in the description at the construction of the tabernacle of the, high, of the accouterments of the high priest. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. In other words, Kadosh, and then it had the four-letter name of God that only one person pronounced only one time in one place. And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies. And you will fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. 
Now, who has the name of God on their forehead under the Old Covenant? Aaron, the priest. Who has the name of God on their forehead in the heavenly holy of holies under the consummation of the New Covenant? Everybody. We are all the high priests making acceptable before God through our worship of God and of the Lamb the holy things of God, the new Israel. Okay? So this is where it all comes together. Any questions at this point? Yes? Yes. Yes, precisely. Because what is the church? It is the people of God. Okay? The people of God are the bride. Who's the bride? You know, going all the way back to the Older Testament, who was the bridegroom? God. Who was the bride? The people of God. So who are the people of God today? We are. We are. And we're invited. Final thought. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Folks, you've gotten your invitation to the wedding. There's only one question left. No. How are you going to respond? Are you going to accept the robe when it's given to you? Are you going to bring your oil to the wedding banquet? Are you going to wait for the bridegroom to seat you where the bridegroom wants you? Okay? Thank you. This has been a load of fun. I've enjoyed it very much. Any more questions?